Hello and welcome to Restoration Church's teaching podcast. We are in Prescott, Arizona. My name is Nate Huss and I'm one of the team members here. And uh, if this is your first time, welcome. We're so glad that you could tune in. And yeah, if you'd like to connect with us or learn more, jump over to restorationaz.org. And uh, before we get going, I just want to encourage you, will you take a moment and just pause really quick? Every week um, at the end of the teaching, we always participate in communion. And so I would love for you to go grab uh, a small glass of grape juice, or if you don't have grape juice, just a glass of juice. If you don't have that, if you just have water, that's okay. Um, It's all about remembrance. And so grab that, uh, a small little piece of bread or a cracker, something that you have, and join us as we participate in communion at the end. And so we feel like there's There's no greater application at the end of listening to God's word than allowing the spirit to unify us through communion and remembering what Jesus has done for us. So take a moment, pause, go grab that. Now that you're back, will you please take a moment just to grab your Bible and we are going to dive in together. Good morning, guys. If if you have a Bible, open up to the book of 1 John. If you've got an actual Bible or maybe you've got it on your phone, uh, 1 John, if you're not real familiar, it's near the end of your Bible. Probably be quicker to go to the back and work your way to the left. You'll find this small little letter, 1 John, different than regular John, but just 1 John. Go to chapter 1 and uh, we'll, we'll spend a little bit of time there this morning. Um, Typically when we gather, we're just going to be kind of teaching through books of the Bible, verse at a time, and then a handful of times a year, and this is one of them, we'll spend a time talking about like a particular aspect of the Christian life that as a community, we're going to practice together and invite Jesus in and and figure out how to uh, really walk in the way of Jesus. This year, we've already done one on forgiveness. We did one on hospitality. And now we're having a conversation for a few weeks about what it really looks like, what it means to trust Jesus in all these different areas. And like Landon said today, um, we're going to talk about trusting Jesus with our sin. So I'm going to give you about like five seconds if you just want to ditch out right now. Um, No harm, no foul. Um, I get it's like super uncomfortable. We don't always like to talk about it. We don't like to listen to sermons about it. I don't particularly like to talk, uh, preach about it. Um, but, but here we are. It's, it's really, really important for us to have a conversation. But please catch my heart on it. I, uh, I really want this to be a refreshing time today. That, that rather than it just heaping more burden or adding some sort of guilt or shame or condemnation, I've really been praying that God would use this as a time of refreshment, even though we're talking about the very serious subject of, of sin, and just see what Jesus really has for you, kind of regardless of where you're at in any sort of spiritual journey, regardless of where you're at, maybe in uh, just how long you've, you've been struggling with a particular aspect of, of sin, for us to have a good conversation about it and find some hope and refreshment, that's, that's, that's really um, my heart. So... Um, I've always kind of been into radio, minored in broadcasting in college, and there's a really famous uh, broadcaster that's since passed away named Paul Harvey. And for about 30 or 40 years, this guy had a pretty significant impact uh, as a radio broadcaster. But a number of years ago, he wrote and then read something over the air that uh, really got a lot of traction, and so much so that he read it a couple times 
uh, a decade and uh, kind of morphed and adapted it over the years. And the original writing of it was in 1964. Okay, so just if you're, you're young and 64 is prior to you, um, then just know that that decade was a really turbulent time. And maybe other than the time that we're living in right now, um, th- th- that would compare. So it's just crazy days back then. If you lived through it, then you know what I'm talking about. But again, this was written in 1964, and Paul Harvey wrote this. It's called, If I Were the Devil. Okay, now I know right off the bat it's a weird way to start, but please just listen up to what he wrote. He says, If I were the prince of darkness... I'd want to engulf the whole world in darkness. I'd have a third of its real estate and four-fifths of its population, but I would not be happy until I had seized the ripest apple on the tree, the. So I would set about however necessary to take over the United States. I'd subvert the churches first, and I would begin with a campaign of whispers. With the wisdom of a serpent, I would whisper to you as I whispered to Eve, Do as you please. To the young, I would whisper that the Bible is a myth. I would convince the children that man created God instead of the other way around. I'd confide that what's bad is good and what's good is square. And to the old, I would teach to pray after me, our Father, which art in Washington. Then I'd get organized. I'd educate authors in how to make lurid literature exciting so that anything else would appear dull and uninteresting. I'd peddle narcotics to whom I could. I'd sell alcohol to ladies and gentlemen of distinction. I'd tranquilize the rest with pills. If I were the devil, I'd soon have families at war with themselves, churches at war with themselves, and nations at war with themselves until each in its turn was consumed. And with promises of higher ratings, I'd have mesmerizing media fanning the flames. If I were the devil, I'd encourage schools to refine young intellect, but neglect to discipline emotions. I'd tell teachers just to let those run wild. And before you knew it, you'd have drug-sniffing dogs and metal detectors at every schoolhouse door. With a decade, I'd have prisons overflowing and judges promoting pornography. Soon, I would evict God from the courthouse and the schoolhouse, and then from the houses of Congress. In his own churches, I would substitute psychology for religion and deify science. I'd lure priests and pastors into misusing boys and girls and church money. If I were the devil, I'd take from those who have and give to those who wanted until I had killed the incentive of the ambitious. What do you bet I could get whole states to promote gambling as the way to get rich? I'd convince the young that marriage is old-fashioned, that sleeping around is more fun, and that what you see on television is the way to be. And thus, I could undress you in public and lure you into bed with diseases for which there are no cures. In other words, if I were the devil, I would just keep on doing what he's already doing. We we don't need... um, a lot of time to build like a real significant case and compile a whole bunch of evidence about how jacked up the world is because of sin. You know it. You look around what's going around in the globe, just really in every facet of life, 
And maybe if you're honest, you just look at your own life and your own heart, and there's probably plenty of evidence right there on the effects of, of sin. And so while we want to get to the refreshing part, as we talk about trusting Jesus with your sin, just real briefly, I mean, you know in your heart of hearts, even if you don't have much biblical background, what is sinful? But from the Bible's perspective, I do want to give you, for clarity's sake, uh, some of a description, a working definition of sin from God's perspective, from the Bible's perspective. If you're taking notes, then two, two things for you to catch. One, sin is quite literally, and we'll see it here in 1 John, sin is uh, rebellion against God and his word. It's lawlessness. Sin is breaking God's law. But in a broader sense, sin is also any distortion or deviation from that which God has already declared as good. You know, if you go back and if you read your Bible and you open it up and you do start at the beginning in Genesis 1 and 2, and you read how he created and what he created and all of it, and over and over again, the repeat is, it was good, it was very good. So it begs the question, because we're living in it, And obviously stuff's changed. Something went wrong. So what happened? Well, well, sin is what happened. And sin is really affected the whole. It's not just these moments of sinful disobedience or rebellion against God that you and I have done. You multiply that times all of creation and then creation itself has been affected by sin. Any moment where you wonder or wish or think this isn't the way that it should be, probably a result of sin. It's those, this isn't the way it was intended sorts of moments. You know, animals aren't the way they should be. You and I aren't the way they should be. Uh, Your work isn't the way it should be. Um, Marriage isn't the way it should be. Relationships aren't the way it should be. Childbearing isn't the way it should be. Finances, providing for all sorts of people, that's not the way it should be. You look at every aspect of life, the environment isn't the way it should be. Everything has been messed up as a result of sin. And it's a distortion of the way it should be, the way God originally intended, it's affected everything. It appears biblically that the origin of sin came with Lucifer, uh, one of God's created beings, angelic beings, who wanted to be like God and then led a revolt, a rebellion against God. And God cast him out. And subsequently then, Satan, Lucifer, came and then tempted Adam and Eve, maybe not ironically in the same way that, that he found his heart welling up. He tempted them with, hey, you can be like God too. Hey, you could operate independent of God too. Hey, uh, you can just kind of do your own thing. You can rebel. You can disobey. You can be in control. And they swallowed that hook, line, and sinker. And then as a result, every single human being since has inherited from Adam that sinful nature. And it's a nightmare. It's a mess. Sin is quite the disease. 
you might think of it in those terms. Sin is really a disease. It's not just the stuff that we didn't do or the things that we should have done and didn't do. It's a disease that is affecting all of us. Like cancer. I mean, some of you are super aware because you've had to live through it. You can go in and root a piece of it out, but if that's it and you stop there, it can come back. If you ignore it and pretend like it doesn't exist, it just continues to grow and can have terminal effects. Sin is a hideous disease, similar to to this cancer. You know, several years ago, shortly before we moved here, I went to uh, the dermatologist for the first time and uh, get my skin checked out. And he kept looking at my face and my head and kept going, oh, mm, mm. You never want that sort of response from your doctor. And he finally said, unfortunately, Ron, like you've got this precancerous skin cell condition that uh, is, if we don't do anything, it's going to turn to skin cancer. And so we have to treat it. And so he prescribed the lowest form of chemotherapy. It was a topical sort of cream. And it wasn't just where you put on one little area. He said two times a day, every day for six weeks. You're going to put gloves on because you can't touch other parts of skin because it's going to eat through many layers of your skin. It's going to wipe it out and you'll be good for 10, 15 years. And then we'll come back and have to check again. He said the first two weeks, you're going to look like the worst sunburn you've ever had. Then the next two weeks, it turns from sunburn into scabbing. And then the next following weeks, it scabs, it breaks apart, and then you're going to be bleeding all over your your face. And then at that point, he said, what what do you do for a living? Are you ever like interacting with people or (laughs) it wasn't going to turn out good? I couldn't touch my wife for that period. My kids couldn't touch my face. I had to sleep in this one part where only that same pillow. I mean, it was it was drastic. In fact, and it went just as he, he planned. It was this miserable experience. And really at its worst, I mean, it did. I started to crack and bleed. And just about the week after when it was at its absolute, I took a picture of myself during that. And here's, here's me uh, at the worst. And so you could see like the toll was pretty dramatic. Now, now, most of you don't really know me. Like you've known me maybe for, you know, less than a year or whatever. Just frame of reference. Here's what I looked like before the treatment started. And so you can see what a catastrophic thing. I've never quite rebounded from the former glory there. But this cancer has affected all of us. Did you know, not, not to make light of it, but this, this deal of our sin takes lives. And when you look through the pages of the scripture, if you haven't done it in a while, or you're not real familiar, a reminder for those of you that know, there are men and women in the Old and the New Testament Example after example after example of the catastrophic effects of sin. This really isn't a who's who of these amazing people. There are some godly people, men and women in the Bible, but for the most part, the real heroes of the Bible are not people. The real hero is God. You look at Paul. Paul, if you're not real familiar, wrote a vast majority of the New Testament. God used him to write a vast majority of the New Testament. And Paul said this in Romans chapter 7. You can go read it later. Paul described this. A guy 
that God used to write a whole bunch of the Bible said, I don't know why I do what I do. He said, the stuff that I want to do, I can't seem to do. And the stuff I don't want to do, that's all the stuff I keep on doing. He said, it's sin at work in me. I don't know if, if you've had those moments. I'm just thankful that someone like actually in the Bible said it. You look at David, King David in the Old Testament that we look to as this phenomenal leader and phenomenal hero. And, he, and, and First Kings says that he had a, a heart after God's, which was true. But many of you also know, I mean, this was a guy who committed adultery and then he committed murder kind of to cover up the adultery. I mean, there was all sorts of areas of David's life that were an absolute mess. Peter, that was one of the inner circle friends of Jesus, one of Jesus' closest disciples, Peter, denied even knowing Jesus right at crunch time. This disease of sin has affected all of us, everybody. Look at, look at just making sure you know you're included. <laughs> First John chapter one. First John chapter one, look at verse eight. It says, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. John's reminding us right here. Hey, if we say, I don't have any sin, you know, that happens sometimes in church amongst Christian people. We've been deceived into thinking or deluded into thinking like, oh, well, I'm a Christian. I've got, I've got sins, but they're, they're respectable sins. I don't like, I don't sin like those people do. That's disgusting. There's no such thing as those people and there's no such thing as respectable sins or those sorts of sins. Sin is sin. And it's all incredibly catastrophic and we are all affected by it. Now, if the story ended there, there isn't much refreshment and this is a big downer today. But look at this. Verse nine. If we confess our sins, confession just means to agree with or say the same thing as if we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have all been affected by this sin and it's killing us, it's wrecking us and our relationships with each other, our relationship with God. But when we're on the same page with God and honest with God about that reality, then he is faithful. He's faithful for, to forgive and he's faithful to cleanse. Now that's so huge. Because I think a lot of times you and I maybe have a tendency to like find our hope. We hear about sin. You've had a moment where you go, I blew that and that was bad and I acknowledge it. But we find our hope in just trying to stop sinning. How well did that go for you? Rather than the hope being in the one who's faithful to forgive sin and cleanse us from sin. 
You know, I, I think like the Bible talks a lot about these moments where you and I have the option to choose whether we're going to rebel against God or follow him. The Bible talks a lot. There's a lot of verses that point me and you to take an active part in having nothing to do with sin. Why? Because it's disgusting. It's destructive. It's hurtful. That's why God hates it. Because he hates what it does to me and you. He's not trying to rob you of fun. It's because it has destructive effects on your heart and your soul and your relationship, much less your relationship with him. He hates it. So the Bible does instruct us to do things like repent, turn away from sin, to avoid it, to resist it, to uh, discipline ourselves toward godliness. We do play an active part in it. But when and if all of your strength strategies fail in trying to fight off sin, then probably what we, we opt to is covering it up or justifying it or just managing it. Okay, I've been trying to fight this for a long time. It just keeps coming back and uh, I can't seem to get over it under my own strength or ability. Um, so I'm going to just sweep it under the rug, cover it up. Or I've been fighting it for a long time and I just can't seem to get a handle on it. And uh, we're good at justifying it. Well, I'm probably doing it, you know, because it's her fault or it's his fault or the way I was raised or I have this, this propensity toward this or that or the other thing. And, and we get really good at justifying our, our own sin. Or we manage it. We go, well, it's just a part of life and I'm stuck with it. And so I'll try to minimize it. I'll do my best to keep it under control. It's, it's a little bit like this. This is just one of my favorite old pictures of it. I'd love just for a minute, um, if you would picture with me that this cup represents your life. It represents your heart, your soul. Now, none of us likes to have an empty Life. We don't like to have an empty heart or an empty soul, which uh, incidentally is a lot of why we're drawn to sinful behavior to fill up what's lacking on the inside or make us feel differently than we feel. Some of you have been wounded so deeply by other people in their sin. And it hurts all the time in here. And one of the coping mechanisms that I've used is to uh, sin, and when I sin, I feel good for a moment. We gotta be honest about that, because if, if sin didn't make us feel good at least for a minute, none of us would do it. But, it. but it works for a little while. It numbs the pain, it distracts us, and, and so we go to it as a way of kind of filling ourselves up. We reach out for, I don't know what your sinful behavior is, but you, you do your thing and your particular weakness or temptation may not be mine, uh, but the enemy knows what yours is and he'll go after you like gangbusters. And you now you've filled your life with stuff, sinful behavior that is quite corrosive and, and dark and hurtful to your heart and your soul. And left there enough time, over time, you start to go, man, I, I can tell this is hurting me. I can see how it's hurt other people. It's, it's numbing me out. It's, it's eating away at me. It's injuring me. What I thought was going to make me better is making me worse. And I don't want this in my life. So we just stop doing what we were doing. 
and rid that stuff from our life. God's not in the equation yet. And at that point, you're like, okay, cool, this is great. For like an hour. And then because our hearts and our souls are thirsty and we're back left to the emptiness, then we just go back, go figure, to the same stuff. Or maybe you try out different stuff this time around. And and now you, you fill yourself up again with the more corrosive, sinful behavior. And now maybe at this point you start to understand, okay, God wants to help somehow. God, you're gonna forgive me when I do this stuff. And so then we, we go to God and we say, okay, God, I don't want this in me anymore. So I'm going to confess that it's there. Will you please forgive me? And then here's the beautiful news. Yes is the answer. He loves to forgive. The problem is most of us stop right there. He's now forgiven us. And then we just march about our merry business kind of separate from any real relationship with God, we're stuck with the same issue. I still got to manage a sin problem on my own. And I'm left with an empty heart, an empty life, an empty cup. So I'm going to reach out to him to make me feel better or her or them or my work or the money or the sinful behavior, whatever it is. And now, oh my goodness, I did it again. God, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. Please get rid of this stuff in my life. Yes, I would love to. And he does. End of story. Tuesday comes around. Oh God, I'm empty again. Please, I don't want to, but I'm just finding myself over and over and over again stuck in this. Is this cycle familiar to to anybody I wasted many years in this cycle thinking honestly that that was kind of the sum total of what it meant to be a Christian. Okay, at least God now can uh, forgive me and cleanse me of my sin. And missing this whole other part, I was just kind of managing my sin. Now, see, if that were the end of the story, it would be such a drag. Now, here comes a little bit of the refreshment because you're definitely not being refreshed so far. I can tell on your faces. The refreshment is this. This is an active part in battling sin. That can be part of the equation. But you understand, right, that that's entirely different than trusting Jesus with your sin. And that's what we're talking about for a few weeks. What does it look like to trust Jesus with my thoughts? What's it look like to trust him with what I do, my work and otherwise? What's it look like to trust Jesus with my devotion and desires, my my heart? What does it look like? What's it mean to actually trust Jesus with this, with our sin, with this disease, with something that's so much more than just behavior? Look at the next verses right after what we read in 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. It says, my little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. Okay, so is, is John being soft on sin or saying, it's no big deal, just do whatever you want? No, I mean, he's saying sin's a reality. And if you just keep doing it, it's going to have catastrophic effects on you and so many other people. I'm telling you about this so that you don't just keep doing that. And then this letter in 1 John, John does this amazing balancing act of explaining 
this weird reality that all of us are stuck in. And the balancing act is this. If you've got a relationship with Jesus, listen to me now. You already, because of your relationship with him, because of what he's done for you, dying on the cross, raising from the dead, listen to me now. You have significant ability to emerge victorious over sin and temptation because you're not having to walk through sin alone. That's on one side. On the other side, however, is this side of heaven, even for Christian people, we're going to struggle with sin. And throughout this whole letter, he's balancing both and. As a believer, you can emerge victorious over sin and this side of heaven, it's always going to be a struggle. And I love that. He said, I'm writing so that you may not sin. Then look at what he says next. But if anyone does sin, you hear the balance? I don't want you to sin, but if anyone does sin, because we're going to, then look, look at what he says. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father and Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Remember this, friends, remember this so huge because it says if anyone does sin, then it says if anyone does sin, you better fight it with all your strength and all your will. And if you fail, that's on you. It doesn't say that, does it? If anyone does sin, then God hates you and he doesn't want anything to do with you anymore. If anyone does sin, then welcome to the human club and you're a loser and there's no victory for you and you might just settle in because this is all you got. I mean, wouldn't it be horrible? But thankfully, here's, here's the gospel. And honestly, right now, if there's people here that you go, you know, I don't even know if I'm a Christian yet. This is a real dividing point. And I also believe for those of you that already are Christians, do you really trust Jesus in what he's done in the gospel? And are you, are you receiving this truth day after day? Because this is such a breaking point. If anyone does sin, here's the gospel. Here's the good news. You have an advocate. God the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, Verse two explains it more. Jesus himself is the propitiation for our sins. That's just a big theological word. And propitiation basically means uh, the appeasement. It can mean like a substitute. But propitiation often has to do with punishment. That justice goes out and in this case, God's saying, hey, Jesus took the punishment that your sins deserved on himself. Justice was satisfied on Jesus rather than on you. And he, at the cross, took all of God's hatred for sin on himself and died with it. But then he didn't stay dead, did he? He rose from the dead. And now... He sits at the right hand of the Father doing what? Advocating on your behalf. 
interceding for you, fighting for you, speaking life to you. So there's the one-two punch of Jesus, one on the cross to break the back on sin, that you don't have to be stuck in this cycle anymore when you put your faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And two, he's right now, when you struggle in your sin, he's right now fighting for you. He's right now wanting to help you through. He knows this disease of sin is just relentless in what it wants to do to you. Are we refreshed yet? Not quite, are we? No. Matthew 11. Look at Matthew chapter 11. Familiar verses to some of you. Others of you, these are some of my favorite in in the scripture. Matthew chapter 11. These are the words of Jesus right here. Jesus is speaking up. And listen to what he says. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Now, Jesus wants to bring rest to every single person in a whole bunch of different areas of life. He wants to bring rest physically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally. There's peace when you're living the way of Jesus. But specifically what he's addressing here, if you read this in context, what we're finding is that the Old Testament, which had the law, uh, all these kind of regulations and rules about how we would possibly interact with a holy God when we ourselves are not holy, righteous people, there was a whole bunch of rules. And then what's more is, by Jesus' day, teachers of the law, Pharisees, others, they had come along and added a whole bunch of other rules and do's and don'ts onto what God's word had said. And so for anybody trying to follow God when Jesus walks up, it would have been this huge burden that they would have become aware very quickly, I can't ever measure up. I can't stop sinning the way that you want me to, God. I can't pull this off. And to those people that don't feel like they could even rest because they can't meet all these standards to be good enough for God, Jesus says, come to me. If you're weary of trying to measure up to be good enough, come to me if you're sick and tired of your own fight against sin all alone. Come to me and I'll give you rest. He says right after that, he says, all of you take up my yoke and learn from me. Listen, he says, because I am gentle and humble in heart. That's Jesus all the time, gentle and humble in heart. But would you do me a favor? The next time you're beating yourself up or struggling against sin, remember that your Jesus, that's your advocate, he's really gentle and really humble toward you. 
He's gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for yourselves. Verse 30, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So if you're trying to trust Jesus with your sin, I think some of the invitation of Jesus right here, two things. One is come to him. Come. I know that's not rocket science, but isn't it weirdly counterintuitive that when you're sinning, you don't want to go to Jesus, do you? You don't want to be corrected. You don't want to have to interact with him because you know he doesn't approve. And yet come to him is the greatest act of trust when it comes to our, our sin. Come to him. I was a youth pastor for many, many years and what broke my heart more than anything else was I, I would develop this deep affection for these kids in my youth group and then they'd hit high school and then they'd start to go out and do sinful, hurtful stuff to them or to other people. But because I was kind of like this tangible representation of, of God in their life and they didn't want anything to do with God because they were out doing their own thing, they didn't want anything to do with me either. And that killed me because I still loved them. I still wanted to be with them. I knew what they were doing. And I wanted to either help or walk with them through it or be a conduit just to communicate grace like Jesus would or some help or some strength or I know why this is the way it is. I know the struggle. But we do that too. Come to me is so foundational so next time you're struggling with sin or you have just sinned and the enemy comes and goes, you should just keep on going because you've gone too far this time. You need to tell him to go to hell. You need to turn the volume down on the voice of the devil. You need to crank up the truth on Jesus who's saying, hey, I know what you just did. I know the struggle against sin. Come to me. That's huge. Just come. And then he says, take my yoke upon you. And you're familiar because you, I'm sure you're all first century farmers, but you know, they would take like a big wooden halter harness thing and, and strap that around an animal to pull the farming plow or equipment through the field. But when it was particularly heavy loads, they'd often put two animals together, two beasts of burden, two oxen or whatever, and they'd harness them together and they would pull the weight together. And Jesus is saying, uh, that thing, that halter thing was called a, a yoke. And he's saying, hey, take my yoke upon you. And some of you are going, see, that's, that's the way I feel about following Jesus. It's just, yeah, I got to get strapped in. Jesus wants me in this head harness and now I got to pull the plow for the rest of my days. And yet that's not even it. He knew that there would be this burden of our sin and this journey of life. And he knew it would be too much for me and you to carry alone. And what he knew that his listeners would know back then was when they would put the two animals together, 
they would always put a new or weaker or younger animal next to the stronger, more experienced one who really pulled the load while the other one just kind of walked along learning from the stronger, more mature one. And so now when Jesus says that, invites you to put his yoke upon you, it's so that he can do all the lifting. Because think about it, between if, if you're one of the animals and Jesus is the other animal, which one of you is the more mature, more experienced, stronger of the two? It's Jesus. And so the invitation is something altogether different and, and special. And so I think trusting Jesus with our sin it looks like different things. It, it looks, there's, there's a handful, there's probably dozens we could put. Here's, here's four. Trusting Jesus with your sin, I think first looks like understanding that he loves when you come to him. He loves it. Trusting Jesus with your sin and your struggle and your burden. Understand here and then pray that he he gets the thoughts here to get down to your heart. When you're at your worst, when you're filled with shame, guilt, whatever, and you come to him, you go to him, he loves that. He loves it. Just if my kids struggled or made a mistake and they came to me with it. See, that's part of the problem maybe we've had parent wounds, father and mother wounds or whatever, when you brought some struggle or issue, you got blasted for it. And now you think God operates the same way. When the reality is God said, Hey, I love when you come to me because I just love the transparency. I love the honesty. I already know you can't pull this off. So come. I love when you come. I love when we talk. I love when you're honest and transparent. Just come. Trusting Jesus with your sin also looks like confessing your need for his help on a regular basis. Trusting Jesus with your sin is just saying, hey, I, I need your help. I can't follow you perfectly every single moment of the day. I don't know that I can pull this off. I don't know that I can overcome this issue. I can't can be some of the most powerful words that you ever speak to God. I can't do it. But when you confess that, agree with him on a regular basis, not just once a week, there's, there's seasons where I'm having to do this multiple times a day. Rather than saying, hey, God, I got this. Hey, God, I'm strong enough for this. Or ignoring God altogether. I'm trying to get in a pattern of just saying, God, I'm, I'm just confessing right now. I need help. And then coupled with that, I think trusting Jesus with your sin looks like confessing also that his way is better. And I think this is a real fundamental issue because I think for a lot of us, I don't know, like in our heart of hearts, if we really always believe that God's way is better than what he's laying out. And that's why we don't trust him with our sin because we go, oh, I think my way is better. I like to be in control. I know what satisfies me. And I really don't think that sobriety is better. I don't think waiting till marriage to be with my future spouse is better physically. I, I don't believe that's better. So I'm going to, I'm totally honest with you. I, I was 
like weeks shy of 30 years old before I got married. And only by God's grace did I save myself for Anna for marriage. Now, do you know how hard that is to get all the way through your 20s and wait? Now, I had to either wrestle with either God, what you're saying to me about what you've got in mind for me and my future wife is better. And I've got to trust that even when it's hard, even when I don't even know if it's going to pan out that way. That was a hard one. But I can tell you that by the time we got there and my wife also had done the same, there was not a level of baggage that we brought into it. We, we, and, and there was just real beauty in it that I could never have fathomed, but I just had to trust him that your way is better and I'm going to hang in there. Now hear me on this. I know that probably the majority of this room, that probably wasn't your story. That may not have been your story. I take you back to first John. If anyone sins, you have an advocate who's there for you, gets it, goes, I know, I know it's hard and I got something better for you. So now I can bring some cleansing, reset button, here we go. And you're still coming to him. He's still working on it with you. Because while that wasn't an area that I fell to, there were others that I did. We've each got our thing. But then lastly, this is huge. Trusting Jesus with your sin looks like, I think receiving as a gift, God's grace, his love, and the truth of what took place on the cross his finished work on the cross. You know, he said that from the cross. It is finished. In other words, any payback that needed to go out for sin, any more punishment that needed to go out for justice to take place, Jesus finished it all. So please stop trying to make up for something that you think Jesus lacked in performing for you. It's done. You don't need to beat yourself up anymore. Any beating up that needed to happen, Jesus said, I took it. It's finished. Any of the work that needed to go out, it wasn't Jesus did his part and now you got to go do your part. Jesus did all the work. And now when you put your faith and trust in him and you receive as a gift, that's a gift. He wants to bring you into a relationship with him as a free gift. He said, it's your salvation. It's your life. It's a new heart. It's a gift to you. I want to give to you. And what we're going to do is we're going to trade. You hand me your sin. And in exchange, I'll hand you my righteousness. Second Corinthians chapter five, verse 21. That's a great trade. But do you know that gift of his love and his mercy and his free, that's always going. That's always there, man. That's huge. It's a gift. What if tomorrow, the next day, when you sin, right afterward, you go, oh, that's not good. But oh, Jesus has a gift for me. Every time we sinned, it was Jesus got a gift for me right now. And I can choose to receive it or not. 
He's such a good giver of gifts, and he's got a gift for you, not just in your salvation, but every single time we stumble. He's got gifts for you all the way up to heaven, and then this crazy gift that we can't even imagine afterward. Gift after gift after gift. And so when it comes to trusting Jesus with your sin, I don't think this cycle needs to continue. And I'm going to say something a little bit weird here, but just roll with me for a second. Rather than making the focus of your struggle or your life your sin and trying to fight it or overcome it, what if you made your focus Jesus? What if you made your focus his love? What if you made your focus the gospel? What he actually did, who he really is, the gift that he has for you, make that the focus I'm not minimizing the consequences, the effects, the nature of sin. It's hideous. It's destructive. But rather than focusing on sin, when we trust him, what if we come to him and he says he's living water? He says that he's got this limitless grace, love, mercy, truth. When we come to him in prayer, when we come to him in his word, when we come to him in worship, when we just dialogue with him and we're confessing to him, he pours himself into you, his spirit into you, and then it just displaces all of the sinful junk that's in there. And now you're not left with an empty cup. You're left with his spirit, a a real relationship with him. And so now your longing for the junk is just diminished. It's not that it won't completely go away because you still can be walking in and then somebody walks by and you go, oh, wow, she's pretty or he's amazing. And, and you, you partook a little bit. Whoa. Okay. Sins back in. And you got two options at that moment. Keep going back to the sin. It's changed your complexion a little bit or Jesus saying, come to me and I'll give you rest. Let me pour myself into you and fill you up to overflowing. I think this is a little bit more of the picture of what it looks like to trust Jesus with our sin on a regular basis. Come to him. Let him do what only he can do with regard to your sin. And so, Father, we thank you. We thank you for being our advocate We thank you for being patient with us. We thank you for being slow to anger and abounding in love and so compassionate, gentle and humble in heart. Jesus, we thank you so much for all that you did on the cross. We thank you also for proving that you had the ability to make dead things live when you came back to life. Now, Lord, would you help us trust you trust you with these areas that each of us have. But to set our sights on things above where you are advocating for us right now rather than on the struggle, rather than on the stuff. And fill us up to overflowing. Displace the junk. We humbly receive whatever gift you've got for us right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I think it's dangerous to uh, 
give me a mic when I'm not teaching. And the, the last gathering, I gave this little mini sermonette after. And at the end of the day, it's not even needed. I think Ron laid out uh, what it looks like to trust Jesus with our sin, uh, with a really great theological foundation and depth, but also in an incredibly just tangible and, and practical way. And so it's that simple. Normally, we uh, make time for confession at the beginning of our gathering. Today, with uh, this topic of trusting Jesus with your sin, we moved it to the response time uh, of our gathering. And so it's simple. In the next couple minutes of, of silence here, just embrace the gift. You've been uh, shared with and how to do that, and now there's really nothing left to do but approach the throne of grace with confidence, approach the loving Father with confidence, and embrace the gift that is continuously being offered. So go ahead in the next few moments, uh, take time to confess, to approach our our Father, and then we'll uh, embrace communion here in just a moment. Father, may you overwhelm us with your love. May you cause us to draw near, to run home, to pursue you as your love never ends and you continue to pursue us. We thank you uh, for the gift of confession and forgiveness and transformation that you alone can provide. Um, We even ask that you help us to accept it. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, If you're new with us, one of the things that we do every Sunday is we, we share in a time of taking communion. And you could do this uh, individually on your own or maybe with a family member or friends or a group of people you want to circle up with, kind of however you want to approach it is okay. But this is one of the most important things we do because we never want the application of any teaching or sermon to be now go and do, but rather come to the table and again, simply accept the gift being given. When we take communion, we recognize and remember and are united with 
Christ. We remember that he gave up his body and blood for us, but that it didn't end there. He rose again, and so he is living and breathing and alive and well as king, and he is a part of who we are. We are united with him, and so what matters most now is to come to the table, and if you're a follower of Jesus, to take the bread and the cup and to know that he is within you, he is for you, and he is with you. So we invite you now, uh, during this next song at any point, to come to the table, to take communion, and let's continue to, to worship by doing so, and then in song. Thanks so much for listening. Once again, we are Restoration Church in beautiful Prescott, Arizona. And again, my name is Nate Huss. I'm one of the team members here. So glad that you were able to join us. And uh, if this is your first time listening or you've been listening for a little while and um, are still doing the online thing, I just want to encourage you, go get plugged in. Um, Restoration may not be the church for you and that's okay, but I want to encourage you, go get plugged in with the local body. Is there a church in your area that you could trust and join and, and be a part of the body of Christ? There's something that is really valuable and important about journeying together with other people who are on the journey of practicing the way of Jesus. And so um, whatever that looks like, if restoration is a, a place that you could call home and you're in Prescott, Arizona, or in one of the quad cities in the area, we would love for you to join us. If not, I just really want to encourage you, um, go get plugged into a local body. It's really, really valuable. Um, and I truly believe it is important for us on our journey of faith. And so um, again, if you'd like to learn more about us, you can go to restorationaz.org. And as always, remember, Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.